to the General Conference. It is a message that has been called the most precious message. It has also been referred to as a message talking about Christ, our righteousness. Today, it is known as righteousness by faith. There is debate whether the message resonated with everyone at the church, at the conference. There was a group who embraced the message. There were also those who opposed. Much has been written about that conference. Now, at the time, the exact message is not known because they didn't keep minutes from the meetings. So what has been deduced about the message that was called this most precious message has been deduced from the writings of Jones and Wagner and Uriah Smith and, and George Butler, uh, who were at the time conference president and secretary. The two had been publicly feuding. These two groups had been publicly feuding. There was a lot of different topics that were covered. Some we would look at today, it's like, well, everybody knows this. What's the big deal? Because it's understood as truth. But there were some things that were going on at the time that people were struggling with. As I've gone back and read through the writings of Jones and Wagner, there are four things that stood out to me. I would encourage you to read them on your own to see what they say. Be careful of people who try to summarize what somebody else says because they're looking through it through a biased lens, and that includes me. The first that, that Jones and Wagner put forth was there was something more at the cross than just a legal transaction. This idea that Christ paid the price for our sins is true, but the message didn't end there. They understood by his stripes, we are healed. In a similar manner, they understood that what Jesus' ministry was was not simply filling some legal obligation to make God happy, but his ministry was about revealing the true nature and character of God to destroy the works of the devil. The next issue that struck me is they understood that there is only one covenant of redemption. And that was established in the garden the second Adam and Eve fell. The last message that I pulled from that is as they had a heated debate over the difference between the covenant at Mount Sinai and the new covenant that Christ ushered in. That debate is not an unusual debate. It raged in the early church. It was the fundamental reason Paul wrote Galatians, was to address the issue in the early church, and it is an issue that will continue to be debated until Christ returns. And that today is going to be the foundation of my sermon. Those of you who know me know that when I hear the word covenant, as Bob would say, Bob and Melvin not here today, but as Bob would say, I, 
I'm like the dog who sees a squirrel. I just got to chase it. I hear the word covenant, and I've got to go there. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a wonderful, merciful Savior you are. Who would have ever thought that it would be a lamb that would defeat the fallen one? You could have come as many things. You could have come as the lion. You could have come as a bear. You could have come as anything. But you chose the lowly lion, for you are meek and lowly. May the words that are spoken today be your truth, not mine. And I encourage everyone to do what we all should do. Take everything we hear, test the scriptures, and take it to prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And what? Heirs according to the promise. I mentioned earlier in Galatians, a dispute had arose over the Old and a New Covenant. In the church, some Jewish converts were teaching that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. Paul vigorously, with a passion that we sometimes cannot understand, refused to accept it and allow it to infect the church. Oh, you foolish Galatians! Who likes to be called a fool and to be called a fool by your mentor and teacher? But Paul was passionate that the infection could not be allowed because it destroyed the gospel. He goes on then to compare the two covenants, the Mosaic covenant at Mount Sinai and the covenant that Jesus was ushering in, the new covenant, and he compared them he went back to the story of Abraham, and he compared him to Hagar and Sarah. See, we have to understand the issue of circumcision and what the message of circumcision was. God had promised Abram that he would be a father of many nations. And we read that in Genesis 12. But there was a problem. What was the problem? Sarah was barren. She could not have a child. Abram comes out of her. Time passes. And he's still holding on to that promise. And we begin and we pick up the story in Genesis 15 where Abram is lamenting to God, Lord, you've promised me that I would be the father of many nations. And yet I go childless. Is it going to be my servant, Eleazar? And the Lord gave him a powerful promise and said, No, it will be a son, and he will come from your own loins. But time passed. The child was not forthcoming. So Abram and Sarah decided to do something that I'm sure none of you or I have ever done. They decided God needed a little help. And so he goes, and Sarah takes her maidservant. Abram lies with her, and a child comes forth. 
some time passes, and God visits Abram again. And this is where he takes Abram and he says, No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And this is where he tells Sarah, Your name shall no longer be Sarah, but it's going to be Sarah. And as a memorial for my promise that I gave you, that you will have a child from your own loins, I want you to implement and use circumcision of the male children and all the males in your camp. And this will be the sign of my promise to you. What is that message of circumcision that we need to know and understand? And it's seen in the sequence. 15, Genesis 15, you will have a son from your own loins. Genesis 16, Abram does the human thing. God needs a little help. He tries to fulfill God's promise by his human effort. And in Genesis 17, it says circumcise. And so every time I believe Abram was circumcising a child and circumcising a male, he was reminded how he foolishly thought he could fulfill God's promise by his human effort. This is the message, the difference between the old and the new covenant. The terms of the covenant were fine. The problem was the condition of the human heart. The first promise given to Adam was, I will put the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He didn't say, you put the enmity. He didn't say, I need you to do this. He simply made the statement, I am going to do it. Why? Why is it? And this is why Jones and Wagner understood and came to understand that there is only one covenant of redemption. It was established with Adam. And every covenant promise from that point forward, the promise to Noah, the promise to Abraham, the promise at Mount Sinai, the promise to David that there would be a king forever, the covenant of brotherhood, the covenant of salt, the covenant of blood, 16, as I've gone through scriptures, 16 different covenant promises, they all go back to the same thing. It's simply a progressive revelation of how God is going to fulfill that very first promise given to Adam. It's interesting that there was only two conditional covenants throughout that history, and man failed both of them. The covenant given to Adam before the fall you can do, eat from any tree. You can have the garden. Do whatever. Enjoy it. Just don't eat from that tree. We read later in Hebrews, talking about Jesus, talking about the new covenant. 8.6, but he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also a mediator of a better covenant that was established on better promises. Why is it a better covenant? Why is it better promises? Because it's Jesus fulfilling them. He is fulfilling what you and I are totally and utterly incapable of doing. So my question is, 
what was really wrong with the covenant in Mount Sinai. Question, when Adam sinned, whose heart changed? Was it God or was it the heart of Adam? It was Adam's heart that changed. And what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed? Their relationship with God was damaged and their relationship with one another was also damaged. Every one of us, without exception, from that moment forward, have inherited that same sinful nature of Adam. This is why David wrote in Psalms 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. No, she wasn't having an illicit affair. David understood that by nature, you might not like this, we are born children of Satan because our character reflects the fallen nature. And you and I are helpless on our own to change it. We cannot change, no matter how hard we try. And so the question is, do we understand that? There is a big lie that the vast majority of Christianity has bought into. And you know what that big lie is? The problem was with the covenant, not with my heart. I want you to keep that in mind as we proceed. I mentioned earlier, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul is using the word heir. That's an inheritance. For you see, the new covenant takes in part the form of an inheritance. We read in Hebrews 9, 16 and 17, For where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since he has no power at all while the testator lives. What kind of covenant is being described? A last will and testament. Has anybody here ever had the unfortunate circumstances to be an executor of a will? To be a mediator of that will? Because if you have, then you have a much better understanding of Jesus' role as mediator of a better covenant. Instead, because when we hear mediator, we think there's two sides opposing and somehow I'm standing between the two, keeping the two plays apart because they're ready to go into blows and a mediator is somehow trying to resolve the conflict. But that's not what a mediator of a will does. The mediator of a will sits down and says, what were the wishes of the testator. What's contained in a will? Here's some of the things. There's a lot of things can be in a will. Are the beneficiaries, the heirs named? What did the scriptures tell us? Our names were written in the book of life when? 
before the foundation of the world. There's also the idea of distributing your assets and your valuables. Talks about Noah inheriting righteousness. We talk about imputed and imparted righteousness. It all comes from him. Do you not also make provision for your loved ones, for your spouse, for your children? If I do not go, I cannot send the comforter. Are you getting a glimpse of why I'm like that dog and the squirrel? I see covenant. And there are so many scriptures that just begin to explode. <coughs> Excuse me. So let us go ahead and begin. Why did the old covenant fail? The old covenant failed. You read in Exodus 20, Jesus speaking the terms of the covenant. But the reason it failed is revealed in Exodus 19. Because there, in Exodus 19, Moses comes down after speaking to the Lord, and he shares with the people that God is about to, to reveal himself to them, and he's telling them to get prepared. And the people say, what? All the Lord says we will do. Really? All the Lord says we're going to do. They had a wonderful track record of, of following the Lord's instructions, didn't they? From the time the Lord, Moses went to Egypt till the time they kept them out Sinai, time and again, we would rather be back in Egypt. We, you brought us out here to kill us, to die. We'd rather be back there with the garlic and the vegetables. See, the problem was is that the people had been slaves. And when you are a slave, what is the motivation for obedience with your masters. It's based on fear and hope for reward. Fear because I don't want to be punished if somehow I make a mistake. Or if I'm really good, he'll reward me. Maybe instead of working the fields, I can have a nice cushy job in the office. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. God is love. Question, can love exist in an environment where fear, force, and coercion are used to bring about obedience? Do you now understand why Jones and Wagner were so passionate about the message of the cross was more than just a legal transaction? that there was something much more deeper, that if you limit the cross to nothing more than a legal transaction, it leads to a false gospel. God's desire when he came to Mount Sinai 
Let them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. We read those words and think, oh yeah, how beautiful. But picture yourself as a slave. All you've known is slavery. And your idea of a god is the idea of the Egyptians where if a famine occurs or something bad happens, the gods are angry and the gods have to be appeased. So what do you do? You offer a sacrifice to appease the anger of the god and hopefully the god will relent and pour out blessings on you rather than some punishment. That was their mentality of the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And don't point our fingers at them because Christianity is infected with the same thinking. One church turns around and says, we have to sacrifice Jesus at every mass, every morning, every evening. We need to do it twice on the Sabbath because that's the only way we can get grace from God because we have to appease his anger. He's so righteous that every sin just is whores and he hates it. And the other side is no better. Oh, he died for my sins. I'm okay. He paid the price. Doesn't matter what I do. And understand, Satan doesn't care which side you're on. As long as you're not on Jesus' side, he's happy. Happy as can be. So let's run down some of the differences between these covenant. And um, hopefully this is actually going to be something new for you that you may not have thought about. The typical list that I've seen, I'm a list guy, by the way. I love lists. And uh, the typical list goes something like this. Well, it was the blood of an animal in the old covenant. and uh, It's the blood of Jesus in the new covenant. You know, it was, you know, the, the, the animal that was pure, and it's Jesus who is pure. And these are all good things. They're right. But I'm going to be candid. To me, they're superficial. I'm not diminishing them. And hopefully I can share with you why I think we really should be looking at and some of the things that we should be considering. What is the relationship between God and man in the Old Covenant it is master and slave. In the new covenant, it's a marriage. The bridegroom and the bride. What is the condition of the benefactor? In the old covenant, you're a slave. In the new covenant, you're an heir. You are a child of God. Paul emphasizes this point in Galatians, and I'm going to read very quickly just so that you understand and absorb. Tell me, you who desire, this is Galatians 4, 21 through 25. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Referring to Sarah and Hagar. But he who was the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, human effort. He that was a free woman was born through the promise, divine effort, God's work. 
which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For Hagar is the Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now in the bondage of her children. And he goes on to say, but we are children of the promise. When you think of righteousness, what do you think of? In the Old Covenant, it's my righteousness. In the New Covenant, it's Christ's righteousness. What about faith and works? In the Old Covenant, the faith and reliance is on me. What I do. Tell me, good teacher, what must I do? Keep the commandments. Which ones? You know them. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie, don't murder, don't steal. Oh, I've done all of these things. What did he lack? The new covenant, our faith and reliance is on Christ. If you wanted to summarize Jones and Wagner's message in, in simplicity, and, you can, and if you get this, you can just go to sleep right now or do what you want to do. Revelations 12, 14, 12, talking about the three angels' message. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. The human nature. We keep the Ten Commandments. We're the remnant church because we know the Ten Commandments still apply. Jones and Wagner came along and says, no, you got it all wrong. We're incapable of keeping without the author of life without Christ. So instead of putting our focus on keeping the commandments of God, put your focus on having the faith of Jesus. Because if you have the faith of Jesus and develop the faith of Jesus, allow Jesus into your life to make those transformations, you will keep his commandments. Human nature is to put the cart before the horse. Jones and Wagner were saying we got it all wrong. We got to reverse it. We got to put our eyes on Jesus, not ourselves. What about our sinful nature? Paul understood under the old covenant, as long as I think I can do it, my sinful nature will continue to grow. But in the new covenant, my sinful nature dies. What was the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Kind of a tricky one, isn't it? Because the old covenant, Paul tells us, the law was given to bring us to Christ. Are the Ten Commandments still applicable? Absolutely. We'll cover that in a minute. Why I believe that is so passionately so. But guess what? In the new covenant, its purpose hasn't changed. It's still designed to bring us to Christ. I don't know about you, but the closer I draw to him, I can't imagine what Isaiah thought when he was taken into the premise of God. I don't think the words can fully express it. How is obedience achieved the old covenant's human effort. And what will happen with our human effort? We will always fail. But in the new covenant, 
It's divine effort. I can overcome. I have the choice. God won't make the decision for you. We have to understand that. Oh, give me the Holy Spirit. It's not some Disney magic pixel dust or, or fairy dust or whatever and stuff. You have to make the decision first. And when you make that decision, only then will God give you the power to fulfill it. This is why Paul, Paul understood it. This is why he wrote to the, those foolish Galatians, those Galatians, those foolish fill in the blank. It is no longer I, but Christ in me. What was the motivation for their obedience? Again, they had a slave mentality. Hope for reward, fear of punishment. New, new covenant. Motivations summed up in one word. And what is that word? Love. See, when, when you're under the slave mentality, you look at the Ten Commandments and, and you look at all of God's instruction and you see them as imposed. I have to do them or if I don't, I'm going to be punished. But when you look at it as the basis of healthy, vibrant, loving relationships, as love, when you love someone, you're going to be faithful to them. When you love someone, you're not going to lie. You're not going to cheat. You're not going to steal. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to do those things. It is no longer something imposed upon you. It is something that you desire and want to do because you do not want to hurt the people you love. Paul got it. Took me years in the church to come to that understanding. Thanks to my precious wife. See, the reason for obedience under the old covenant is we think that the obedience earns us salvation. In the new covenant, it is the fruit of salvation. What about our inheritance? We've talked about it. A sinful nature from Adam. In the new covenant, Nicodemus, do you not understand a man must be born again. I don't know about you, but I, I struggled a little bit when I first saw that. I understood what Jesus was saying because the, the Bible pretty much tells us we don't really have to, to guess too difficult wise. But I asked myself, Nicodemus was supposed to know this. So where is it in the Old Testament? And you know, with computers and mobile phones and all these other little handy gadgets you can do and you can type in and do word searches and search the entire Bible. And the only place I could find the words born again was with Nicodemus. Why was Jesus telling Nicodemus he should know these things? And it suddenly dawned on me, don't look for the word look for the principle. And the Old Testament exploded. Psalms 51. Blot out my transgressions. But he didn't stop there. Did David? Create in me the clean heart. And that brings me to the next. What is the condition of the human heart between the Old and New Covenant? 
I'm going to ask you one time today to pull out your Bible, whip out your cell phone, whatever. Please do, because I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. Because I want you to see this. And those who are at home, please do the same. Watching online, please do the same. When you're there, I want to hear a couple amens. Oh, awesome. Whoa, what what an amen. I want you to see what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. And keep in mind, the Corinthians, uh, they weren't exactly the model church, were they? And listen to what Paul says, reading in verse, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2. You are an epistle written on our hearts and known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but the Spirit of the living God. Not just God, but the living God. The God who is near and dear to us every single day if we just but listen, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. See, we like to say as as Adventists that God wrote the, the law on the stone because it's enduring, it lasts forever. And I don't disagree with that. But Ezekiel understood it, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Paul understands it. That that stone represented the condition of my heart. Of all of our hearts towards God. And only He can change it. The second you think you can do it, you have put yourself back under bondage. This is why Paul referred to the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of slavery, of bondage. Not because the commandments were wrong, but because the condition of the human heart is what's wrong. The commandments are not our enemy. God is not our enemy. Satan and our fallen nature is our enemy. And if you get this, Paul wrote too in Romans, he says, for the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it ever be. I'm going to ask you another question. And this was a challenge for me. And I will tell you that if you get this one, you are on the narrow path, I truly believe. When were the two covenants ratified? We know the old covenant was ratified at Mount Sinai, correct? And the new covenant was ratified at Calvary. But when did the two covenants go into effect? See, we, and, and, and this is true, I've read so many books, so many articles, so many white papers on covenants. When I, when I started studying covenants years ago, it was like, I, you know, oh, it just got me. And it gets to the point where I don't even, 
I, I skim through now because it's, it's just, everybody's just simply repeating what they read before, put it in their own words, and they're also saying the same thing. Time and time and time again, they're all sitting back and saying the same thing. Well, the new covenant didn't occur until Jesus died on the cross. See, the Bible even says so. This is because when we think of covenant, we think of covenants as being time-based, situation-based. But see, the covenants, as Paul just pointed out, represent the condition of the human heart. So when did the old covenant begin? The moment Adam and Eve sinned. When was the blessings of the new covenant made available? Are you ready? Same moment. And you may sit back and say, Joe, you're absolutely nuts. You're absolutely crazy. Prove it to me from scriptures. Tell me. Was Enoch translated and taken to heaven? Was Moses resurrected? Before the cross? Was Elijah taken to heaven before the cross? See, we have this little thing in Jude where you see Michael, the archangel, who I believe is Jesus, because he's the only one that can resurrect, disputing with Satan. And I can picture, we're not told with the details of the argument, but I can just picture what's going through Satan. You can't have him. You didn't let him go into the, in, into the promised land because he dishonored you. You yourself made that decision. You kicked me out of heaven because I didn't keep the law. You can't let him in. It's not fair. And by the way, you haven't died on the cross yet. Jesus does what he does. Lord rebuke you. You have no power. And he goes into and does it anyhow. Because he has the authority. Circumcise the heart. Circumcise. That's not an It was there all along. Abraham believed and he was declared righteous. So I have a question for you. I want you to give this some thought too. Don't just rush to it. When you think of the Ten Commandments, what do you think of? Do you see them as an arbitrary set of rules that operate like a man's law? Which if you break, it requires God to punish you. And of course, remember, in man's law, you can only get punished if you get caught. Or do you see them as the basis of healthy, vibrant, Loving relationships, which you've broken, requires grace and repentance to heal and restore the relationship. And as you contemplate that, let me read to you a couple statements from those Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah is speaking of the new covenant, and specifically speaking about the covenant at Mount Sinai. He says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out by the hand and led them by the land out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was as a 
husband to them. Isaiah earlier declared, for your maker is your husband. One of the things that I thought was fascinating is is that the Bible scholars who who delve into covenant principles understand that the Jewish uh, marriage ceremony had two parts. There was a marriage contract, marriage ceremony, and then there, there was the actual wedding, and there was time in between. And the punchline always was is that the father set the wedding date because the groom might get a little too anxious for the wedding night and skip and skimp on some of the preparations. So when you hear Jesus say, no one knows the day or the hour, but the father, I believe he's making reference to that principle revealed in the marriage. When you think of wedding vows, what comes to mind? You are committing yourself to love, to honor, to be faithful, and to serve one another. Is that not? Wow, I didn't hear an amen on that one. That's what I think of. So my question to you today now is, is that as I try to wrap this up, Can we find those principles of the New Covenant in the Ten Commandments? Are you ready for a journey? I hope so. Men in, in wedding vows, you are committing yourself to that person with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your body. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. That is being faithful to God every aspect of your being. The second commandment is don't worship idols. Well, how do we typically worship? We let our eyes, our body. I grew up in a church where we bowed and kneeled to idols. Be faithful with your body. You committed yourself to one person. What is the third commandment? Respect. Don't take my name in vain. Name reflects what? Character. Don't diminish your spouse with your words. Be faithful with your words. Be faithful in your deeds. And can any marriage survive if the husband and wife don't spend time together? Sabbath. Be faithful with your body. Be faithful with your words. Be faithful with your eyes. Be faithful with your time. What about grace, mercy, and love? We all love to talk about those are the things in the new commandments, right? New covenant. Do they exist in the old covenant? And while we're on it, let's, let's add the fact that we think about the atonement, the justification, the sanctification. And what about the cross? Can we find the cross in the Ten Commandments? In the Second Commandment, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Is grace, mercy, and love in the Ten Commandments? I made reference to the church 
that I grew up in, they removed the second commandment from their teachings. They removed God's grace, love, and mercy. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He was actually quoting from the Ten Commandments. Who do you think gave us the Ten Commandments? Before Abraham was, I am. The Jews wanted to stone him. Why? Because they understood that when the Lord God spoke to Moses, I am, then I am. He had just declared that he had spoken to Moses, that he was God. And they couldn't comprehend it. And this brings us to the final question. Is the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Lord laid upon him nine plagues. Pharaoh didn't relent. Pharaoh, by the way, is a symbol of the fallen one. What was the tenth plague? Death of the firstborn. Passover. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Those were the instructions given to the Israelites. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if that isn't enough for you, Paul declares in Corinthians 5-7, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Christ is the Passover Lamb. Christ is the reason why, they were why we are delivered. It is the same option, the same thing that delivered them out of the hands of physical bondage, out of physical slavery. I delivered you. And by the way, that same church that I made reference to removed the fact that God is deliverer out of their teaching of the Ten Commandments. I didn't learn that in that church. Why would you take it out? Because you want to replace God with humanity. And by the way, if you compare the old the covenant in given in Exodus, and then compare the covenant writing in Deuteronomy, you will notice that there is a slight change. Scholars have gone back and noticed all of these things and all these similarities per, per, to, to, to covenants by the Hittite Empire. And they, and they love to do these scholarly comparisons and sit back and they talk about all of these kinds of things and, and how the Ten Commandments actually mimic the, the same kind of treaty and covenant that the Hittite Empire would make with their, with their surrounding neighbors. They leave out a couple things. They talk about it. They write it in their scholarly, but when they write it for public consumption, they leave out some things. One of the things they leave out is, is that the Hittites had an interesting habit. They always put their seal of authority in the center of their covenant. A seal is what? A sign of authority. Name, title, and territory. Why do you think they leave it out? 
Where is God's seal of his authority? Name, title, territory. Right in the center of the Ten Commandments. But you see, he does something different. Where in, in Exodus, see back then too, if you broke covenant, and then we sit down and renew covenant, I, as a superior, had the ability to modify, to amend the covenant. And this is exactly what God does. And so where in Exodus, the Sabbath was given, remember me as creator. Well, if that's not enough for you, and remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God command you to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. And by the way, in Exodus 31, the Sabbath was given as a sign to remember I who sanctifies you. So you see, when someone turns around and says the Ten Commandments foolishly, hopefully with ignorance and not with intended malice, the Ten Commandments were done away with, either in part or in whole. What they're doing is doing away with the cross. So the next time somebody challenges you on that, you might want to share that with them. But remember, don't be haughty about it. It's so easy to do, so easy to fall into. So I leave you with this. Psalms 51. David didn't ask for just one. He asked for two things from God. Blot out my transgression, there's the legal. But then he said, create in me the clean heart, because I do not have the power to do it. I was born with a sinful nature. I didn't ask for it. It's what I inherited. So you fix it, because you're the only one who can. The message of circumcision. We cannot fill God's promise by our own human effort. The moment you do, you put yourself under bondage. We were born with a start of homes, excuse me, a heart of stone, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it ever be. But through Christ, we have been given a heart of flesh. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, say it with me, but Christ lives in me. And that life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not me, not my works, His work, because He loved me and gave Himself for me. Our motivation is no longer fear, force, coercion. It is motivated by love and service to one another. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just give you all the honor, all the glory. I think of the music today that was given to us, and all three are, are favorites of mine. I know you had a hand in it, choosing it, to give me strength and courage to deliver the message that came through Paul that you have given to us today. Let us never, ever look upon ourselves as being righteous in anything because we are filthy rags. 
but let us look upon and gaze upon that wonderful, merciful Savior who by his stripes we are healed, who willingly gave up all of the glory in heaven, not just to come down and die for us, but to show us the true nature and true character of God. For I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And if that isn't humbling enough, you have declared yourself husband to us. You have forever united yourself with humanity. For it's so easy to miss, so easy to neglect, that there is a sacrifice that you gave that extends beyond the cross that goes on for all eternity. Your love for us was such that you have joined yourself with your spouse. May we be worthy of that. We aren't worthy. But may we accept it because of your love. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We'll sing together to end our service this morning. Jesus paid it all. Join us as we sing. <laughs>